Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Some things I want to share with you this morning. As you can see, over the past few weeks, we've been unveiling what we call our heart, who we are, who is Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. And over the past three weeks, this has been unfolding right before your eyes, and it is now complete. Next week, there's not going to be more going down the wall. So how do we articulate who we are? Well, we say that we are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing his love. And the imagery that has been a, you know, built into that is, is quite powerful and it's quite meaningful. So if you just look at the imagery on family, for example, it, we, we're, not, we're not advocating single parent whole homes as the standard, despite what it may look like in the imagery. But we are, <laughs> we are advocating families. You see, there's just one tall person, you see. That's what I'm, that's what I'm alluding to. Just the one parent in that. I think the F is the parent who's, who's looking out over them. But anyways, the imagery is powerful. We've got family, people who come together. We are a family of people who come together, who belong together, who God has knit together. And we're on a journey. A journey is not a destination. There's a difference. Your journey ends when you reach the destination. And we are on a perpetual journey. Uh, The Old Testament would call it a pilgrimage. We are on a pilgrimage. To, be, to discover who God is, to enjoy Him every day, and our destination is to become more like Christ. Amen? And in some ways, we are born again. The life of Christ is already within us. We are recreated as new creatures in His image and in His likeness. But our journey is the discovery of what that means and how to live that out so that our lives actually begin to resemble the life of Christ, the nature of Christ, and the, and, and, and the love of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that imagery there on Christ is the cross. You see, we, we often see the cross as an end, as an end in itself. It's a depiction of salvation. You come to Jesus, you embrace the cross, and you get saved. But salvation in itself was never the end destination. It's the doorway into a whole new world. In as much as the cross was not the end for Jesus, but it was the ushering in of a new dispensation, of newness of life, of resurrection, so too for you and I, the cross is not an end, but it's a beginning. It's a doorway that opens us up to a whole new realm of life, the very life of God, and a whole new realm of possibilities, and into a whole new kingdom. And the imagery on the kingdom word there is a flag. It's a banner. It's a banner of victory. The Bible says His banner of victory is... His banner over me is... Love. Love. So when we wave the kingdom banner of Jesus, we declare that He is King, that He is Lord, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And His banner over me is love. We express His love. And again, the imagery there is powerful because of the crown of thorns. Crowns are given to kings. Amen? They represent authority. 
And although the crown of thorns was placed on Jesus' head to mock him, and he took on the suffering and the pain of that, in doing so, he showed the world what love looks like. That love is sacrificial. That love lays down its own life and itself and its own interests for the life of others. What I want to do today is I want to start sharing with you some understandings and some principles about the kingdom. First week we started, I shared with you what family is. How do we relate to one another? We understand one another's weaknesses and strengths and failures. And we understand that God brings us together so that we can be a blessing to one another. Amen? That's what family is. Each member brings something important. Some are more prominent. Others are more hidden. But as much as my heart is hidden and my face is prominent, my face wouldn't look so great if my heart wasn't working properly, right? And it's the whole idea of everything working together for the good of the other members. Interdependency. Last week, Stephen spoke to us about our journey to become more like Christ. This pilgrimage, this pursuit of who He is, of knowing Him, and that as we know Him more, we begin to take on more and more His likeness. The very glory of God begins to reflect so that we can share this new kingdom that we've brought, been brought into. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want us to get an understanding of the kingdom of God, but not so much from a, from a point of view where I'm going to define it for you and say this is what the kingdom of God is like. Because I know we've done that before and we will get onto that. I will speak on that next week. But what I want to do is I want us to look at this concept of the kingdom of God from the context it began to unfold. I want us to look at what the expectations were of the people at the time when this message was preached. I think the more we understand that, the greater life will come to us and a greater expression and an understanding of the kingdom of God will fill our hearts because we begin to understand what was being expected. When Jesus lived on earth, he preached the kingdom of God. That was his message. He said, the kingdom of God is here. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. It's interesting to note that because many say that they've heard that many call the gospel, it's the good news of salvation. It's the gospel of salvation. Salvation is a part of it in as much as the cross is the beginning. Salvation is the beginning. But Jesus didn't preach the gospel of salvation. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And we know it too, when he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, if you, are, you, need, if you need to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And we'll get into that also next week. But the reason Jesus spent so much time teaching on the subject of the kingdom of God was because the people to whom he was sent, the Jews, had misguided expectations. And he had to speak on this and teach this subject to try and correct the expectations to bring in a right understanding. Even from the very beginning of Jesus' life, would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew? You see, we, we can't put it up on the screen for you today. So now you actually have to do the legwork. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. For those of you who have forgotten where, it, where to find it. And we're going right to the beginning. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 4. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. And it says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ or the promised Messiah or the anointed one, all means the same thing, was to be born. You see, Herod was the king over the region. And he felt threatened at the prospect of a new king, a prophesied king, rising up and taking his authority and challenging his own throne. A new king was born. A new king was sent. And it began to upset the very fabric of society at the time. It's interesting to note when we read the New Testament how often Jesus was referred to as the son of David. He was prophesied that from David's line or the son of David, that's what it means, and from the line of David would come another king. And I'll just give you, you can write these down, you don't need to turn to them, but in Matthew chapter 9 verse 27, two blind men refer to him as the son of David. They recognized something of him or in him. He was prophesied and they could recognize that this was the one. Matthew 15:22 The women of Canaan spoke spoke of the son of David the blind men at Jericho in Matthew 20 verse 30 But I think for me the, the the greatest example of this is when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey and the people gathered around they 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 made the way for him they threw their garments on the path they broke palm leaves and set it down they were ushering in the new king in their mind and they said, Hosanna to the son of David. They began to recognize who Jesus was. He was the king, the prophesied one, the chosen one, the anointed one that was coming in to reign. And why is this significant? Why is this title so significant? Because if you study what happened in, in the history of Israel, David was the great liberator. David is the one who rose up and defeated all of Israel's enemies and led them into a time of peace and into a time of prosperity. He liberated them from their captives. And he made provision for the building of the temple of God in Jerusalem. He didn't build it himself. His son Solomon built it. But he made provision for it. So he brought Israel to a place of peace. A place where they were now free from all kinds of oppression. A place where all the promises of God and the covenantal promises, even that were made to Abraham, were now beginning to see manifestation. And life for the people of Israel was changing. And things had never been so good. So what exactly is the, was the expectation of the peoples of, people of Israel? You see, at the time when Jesus was born, Israel was under Roman occupation. They were again subject to a dominating force that exercised authority and control over them. They were captives in their own land, the promised land that was supposed to be theirs for the people of God. And they were captive. The great Bible scholar N.T. Wright writes, The salvation spoken of in the Jewish sources of this period has to do with the rescue from national enemies. Restoration of national symbols and the state of shalom 
in which every man will sit under his own vine or fig tree. Now that statement is a significant statement and I want to unpack that and explore that a little bit with you this morning. But we need to understand that what he says there is very true. The first thing he says is he spoke of rescue from national enemies. The idea in the minds of the people of Israel, of the, of Israel, of the Jews at the time, was a nationalistic mindset. That they were the chosen people of God. And that God would come or He would send His Messiah to rescue them and to establish them over and above every other nation. They were going to have their own sovereign kingdom. And they would be established. And we see that the salvation that they had an idea of there uh, is that the restoration of national symbols, rescue from national enemies and a state of shalom, the peace of God in which every man will sit under his vine or his own fig tree. This phrase, as I said, is very significant. You see, there was a point in Israel's history where they experienced this. Under the rule of David, Israel was liberated. And then under the rule of his son Solomon was the golden era of the nation of Israel. 1 Kings, I'll read this for you. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 24 to 25 says... For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsah to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. What does that mean? It means that every man had his own space, his own place, his own vine, his own fig tree that he could sit under and enjoy the peace, the shalom of God. It's one of the reasons that our current debate in this country is such a sensitive one, the land issue. What is it that the people want? Their own place to sit under their own fig tree or their own vine. You see, when you come out of oppression, you, nothing that you have belongs to you. You're told what to do, you're told how to do it, but yet nothing belongs to you. But yet when liberation comes, and freedom comes, the desire is that each one will have their own place. So the expectation of the coming Messiah in the hearts of the people is that He would once again return Israel to that State. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 4. And I want to read to you the prophecy that, he, that is given. Micah, chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 to 5. And it says this. And it shall come to pass in the latter days. You've got to understand, Micah, this is after the reign of David and Solomon. That has already been experienced. There's already a point of reference of the glory days of Israel in the hearts and minds of the people that they look back to. And Micah speaks to them and he says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. What are they talking about? Jerusalem. The holy city. Many nations shall come and say, 
Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off, speaking of Jesus. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And you see this beautiful imagery coming through again. No longer oppressed. Free. Free to be. And to live under the, the, the authority and within the kingdom of a righteous king. Where each one has his own space. And each one has a place of belonging. So again, in the minds of the people, they were looking for a national liberator that would bring back That was what the prophecy promised. That was what they were expecting. They were looking for another David. John chapter 6, 14 and 15. These are interesting verses because it comes after the wonderful miracle that we know where Jesus fed the 5,000. And he performs this incredible miracle. And then we see in John 6, 14 and 15, it says, "Then Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said... This truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. They recognized him. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus perceived that they were going to take him and make him the king. But not the king according to how he came They were going to make him king according to their idea and their context of what the king was going to be like. And so he had to withdraw from that situation because his kingdom was not going to be like that. You see, the greatest resistance that Jesus experienced in trying to usher in the kingdom of God was the expectations and the perceptions of the people that he had been sent to. We see the sad story, Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39, where Jesus stands on the mountain and he looks out over, over Jerusalem and says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, that is a significant statement. You see, there's things that, if we just read over the surface value, we don't appreciate the fullness of what's trying to be communicated in the Scriptures. That statement is, again, in the same way that everyone under his own vine and under his own fig tree is a loaded statement. This statement is equally a loaded statement. He who comes in the name of the Lord. Of the Lord. Matthew 22, verse 41 to 46. Please turn there in your Bibles. Let's read this together. Matthew 22, 
verse 41 to 46. You've got to understand here Jesus has been conversing with the Sadducees. Now he's talking with the Pharisees. You may say, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were both rulers within Judaism. They both had... But there was one key difference. The Pharisees believed in life after death. That's why they were called the Far Ices. They could see beyond this life. And the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Jesus has just been talking with the Sadducees. And here it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What is he saying? What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about this chosen one, the anointed one who has come to liberate Israel that all the prophecies have been made about? What do you think? And they said to him, The son of David. And Jesus said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This comes out of Psalm 110, which by the way is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. If David then calls him Lord, how is he a son? And no one was able to answer him a word. For from that day on, Sorry, nor from that day on did anyone question him anymore. <laughs> I like that. So Jesus asked, you've got to understand that the, in the context, in the culture at the time. In our, let, let, me, let me contrast it rather this way, saying in our culture and in our time, the way we think of somebody as learned is by the answers that they give to questions. We go, wow, that guy's really smart. He understands things. He can put it all together and he can frame an argument and present it in such a way that it's kind of watertight. That's our form of reasoning. But in that time, it wasn't, you were not measured by how you answered questions or you were not esteemed by how you answered questions. You were esteemed by the questions that you asked. Could you ask, could you ask questions that were sort of open-ended and be extrapolated in such a way and, and bring out some kind of life and revelation that is not just compartmentalized within one sphere or frame, but could sort of encapsulate so much of life. And here we see Jesus asking this question, and again, the answer comes in that he was the son of David. And Jesus says, well, if I'm the son of David, how come David calls me Lord? And that's a, that's, that's a big thing. What Jesus is saying here is, referring to me as the son of David is not enough. Amen. Amen. Someone's excited this morning. Referring to me as the son of David is not enough. But hang on, every prophecy called him the son of David. And, and we would recognize him as the son of David. He would be our liberator king. But Jesus said that's not enough. I am also the son of God. I'm the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm the reflection of the Lord. I come in the image of God, anointed and authorized to carry out his mandates. And the thinking is this. If Jesus was the son of David... He would come in the spirit of David and establish a kingdom the way David did. Do you understand? I want to say that again. The thinking was if Jesus was the son of David, he was known as that, then he would come in the spirit or the likeness of David and establish his kingdom the way David established his kingdom. He would rescue the people from national enemies. 
He would restore national symbols and he would bring and usher the state of shalom where everyone would have his own fig tree or his own vine. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Is kind of the prophecy and the picture that they had. But if we follow the same line of thinking, we understand the comment and the statement that Jesus was making. The implications of what Jesus said are immense. You see, if he truly is the Son of God, then he had come in the Spirit of God to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. In the same way that we originally thought he would come in the Spirit of David to establish the kingdom David's way, Jesus said, it's not enough for you to think of me that way. You need to think of me as I'm the Son of God. And I come in the Spirit and the likeness of God to establish God's kingdom. Not just within Israel, but within all the earth. We see it in Luke chapter 4. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 4. Verses 16 to 21. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Let's just pause for a moment. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. All of the prophets, what did they point to? They pointed to Jesus. You know why they call this the canon of Scripture? Canon means the the measurement. And for anything, any book from Genesis right through to Revelation, the one thing that it had to do in order to even be considered to be included in the canon of Scripture to make it into the Bible is one primary thing. It had to point to Jesus as the Messiah. And so here Isaiah is handed to him the scroll of the prophet that prophesied about Jesus. And he picks up the scroll in verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the year of Jubilee, the year in which all debts are cancelled and all prisoners released. Everybody goes free in the year of Jubilee. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's significant. In the Jewish synagogues, there was a chair that was reserved, a seat reserved for the Messiah, for when he came. And Jesus went and he sat in that chair. That's why it says, all eyes were fixed on him. As if to say, what are you doing? That is the seat of the Messiah. And he said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah has come. 
and I am He. Isn't that amazing? So obviously they threw him out the temple and tried to throw him off a cliff. I mean, that just stands to reason, right? What do you mean? You think you're the Messiah? And that's exactly what happened. He, they, 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 they took him out, threw him out and tried to throw him off a cliff and <laughs> they didn't succeed. But you see, the understanding was this. The thrust of Jesus' ministry was this. Yes, Jesus was the liberator. But the kingdom of God looked very different from the people's expectations. They were expecting a liberator to come, cast out Rome, and establish Jerusalem as the capital, not just of Israel, but of the world. And Jesus didn't do that. It's amazing when, how, if you read the stories of Jesus and his life, how little Jesus has to say about politics. Jesus really didn't address the Roman situation. He didn't come and address the slavery situation, human rights situations. He didn't just talk about any of those things. What he spoke about was the kingdom of God. And the reason people couldn't recognize it, and I dare say the reason people, so many people still can't recognize it today, is because we are still looking for signs out there, for the big thing to happen. Today, in churches all around, or today, believers all around the world still praying, God, Put a Christian man in power. Now, is it good to have a Christian man in power? Yes. Great. But is a Christian man going to usher in the kingdom of God because he's in power? We want to dominate. And then when we have the Christians in power, then we can pass legislation and laws that outlaws everything we don't want. And we begin to sound exactly like the Jewish nation because we do not understand the kingdom that God came to bring in. It is a kingdom where there is a banner waving, where Jesus is the victory. We spoke about the cross. What was the cross? Cross is our sign of victory. He said, it is finished. All sin is forgiven. It's the year, it's the perpetual year of Jubilee. All sin is forgiven. All wiped out. All oppression has been done away with. The people have been set free. The enemy has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And now we usher in a new kingdom. Not from the top down, but from the inside out. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to read from verse 13 through to 21. Luke 18, 13 to 21. I know there's a lot of scripture this morning, but it helps us to paint the picture and put together the, the quilt with all the various patchworks. Then he said, this is Jesus talking on the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? Who to, and to what shall I compare it? He's beginning to explain to them. It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its, in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was leavened. And we see this picture where Jesus says, My kingdom is nothing like what you are expecting. 
It is not about domination and controlling the lives and the minds of people. It is about something which is alive and powerful. In the same way that yeast is alive and powerful. You put that yeast into dough, it comes alive. And it leavens the whole dough. That is what my kingdom is like. It is a bottom-up kingdom. Where the king rules not from the top down, but from the, from the bottom. From the very lowest one. It's an upside-down kingdom. Where there's not somebody ruling from again from the top, but I think the best one is an inside-out kingdom. You see, our natural kingdoms are outside-in kingdoms. They tell you what you're supposed to do. They impose laws and things upon you. But Jesus said, I have written my laws in their hearts. My love I have placed in their hearts. And my love is the very essence of the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of liberation. It is a kingdom of victory and freedom where shalom exists. Not in the external circumstances, but within the heart of every single citizen. Where the kingdom of God comes and it begins when it is sown into the heart of one. And it begins to grow and grow and grow until we change more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ and are sown as sons of God into the fields of the world where we share that kingdom. How? By expressing His love. And in so doing, we sow more seeds and the leaven leavens more and the kingdom grows and the kingdom grows. The Bible said of the increase of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And these are some of the things we're going to get into next week. We're going to start unpacking what this means for you and I in our daily life. But what I, as I said, what I wanted to do this morning was lay a bit of a foundation that we begin to understand the greatness of Where the people of Israel were right is in their expectation of complete liberation. But where they were wrong... You see, you guys just got the idea. I said, I, just like that, the light came on. I saw it. The pennies dropped. That was their expectation. But the reality was a very different kind of kingdom. And so what we are going to do now... I'm going to read you one more scripture. This will tee us up for next week. And then we're going to have some praise and worship. Amen? Romans chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. This is the Apostle Paul praying. And he's praying for the people, the, the, the believers in Rome. And he's praying about them having a revelation of the kingdom of God and what it may look like. And he says this, Therefore, Romans 1, from 15 to 23. I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Did I say Romans? Are you lost? 
It's Ephesians. I've got it written down there as Romans, but as I'm reading, I'm going, hang on a second. This is not what Romans 1 says. Ephesians chapter 1. I beg your pardon. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. I'll start again. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Who is Him? The King. And what He is truly like. That the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of his of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, there's a glorious hope. That everything that the people of Israel were expecting and hoping for has been given in its fullness in their hearts. In our hearts. We have the fullness of the kingdom of God. And next week we're going to start unpacking what that means and how we live that out and how we understand that and why it's such an important part of who we are. Amen? So what I'd like us to do now is to give, stand up and sing praises and give glory to We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.